Is there anyone that comes to your mind that you think might not really belong in the church? For whatever reason, there there are groups of people or there are particular people that, as you think about it, their images come to your mind, thoughts of them come to your mind, and, and you say, I'm not really sure they ought to be in the church. I think it's an important question. Who does the church welcome? It implies that there are people that the church might not welcome. And maybe that's the case. Maybe there are legitimate reasons that there are people who really shouldn't be welcomed in the church. But I think we ought to at least think about it. We ought to at least ponder the question, who is welcome in the church? And the implication, the subsequent implication, are the people that aren't welcome in the church. One of the things that we have to wrestle with when we start thinking about that question is the, I don't know, the innate sense in all of us that we want to be special. And in order to be special, that implies that there are other people who aren't special. Because, I mean, if everybody is special, then nobody's special, right? And so, so we have this perspective sometimes in our minds that we are special, and we are. God's created us. Scripture says we are special to him. Every one of us are, are special to God and created special by him. But we tend to interpret that as, if I'm special, then other people aren't. And we then take the next step of, if I have, I have done something, I am special enough to be welcomed in the church. I'm good enough. I'm worthy enough. I've done enough. That makes me welcomed. And other people then obviously haven't done enough or aren't good enough or aren't worthy enough to not be welcomed. And the church has struggled with that issue for a long time. Someone said to me not too long ago that they, as they pondered it, they wonder if the, maybe the, the, the question that the church has been asking over the last few hundred years comes back to this question of trying to determine who's in and who's out. Who's welcome, who's not welcome. Who's a part of us? Who's not a part of us? And the disturbing part of that issue is that when we read the Gospels, we find that the the first century Jewish religious leaders are doing the same thing. And they're making statements about who's welcome and who's not welcome and who's worthy and who's not worthy. And the disturbing thing is that Jesus keeps being attracted to people and people are attracted to Jesus who are outside of that group that the religious leaders say are worthy. So you come to Mark chapter 2 and Jesus calls Levi as a tax collector. He's not one of the people welcome. And Jesus calls him as a disciple and that later that day he has a big banquet at his house and he invites all of his friends who by and large seem to be outside the circle, outcasts and sinners are how they're typically described. 
And the religious folk get upset with Jesus and they go to his disciples and say, why is he eating with all those people? Because eating a meal with them means that you want to be friends with them. You want to have a relationship with them. And Jesus overhears this and interjects and says, look, you got to understand, I came for the people who are sick, not for the people who are well. I came for people who everyone else says are unworthy and unwelcome. And something about that mindset is what the church has to wrestle with. I think it's something what's going on in the story we read about Ananias. And the subsequent story after this in chapter 10 of Peter and Cornelius. And this story of Ananias, Paul, uh, Saul actually, at that time his name is Saul. It's changed to Paul a little bit later. But he's been persecuting Christians. He has this walking to Damascus. He has this vision. He's blinded. And God comes to Ananias and says, look, I want you to go to see Saul and I want you to pray for him. And in the story in chapter 10, Peter uh, is, ha- has a vision. Uh, he's up on the rooftop, has a vision in his, in his, pray- his prayers of a sheet coming down, covered with all the animals and food that Jews are not allowed to eat. And it comes down to him and God says, Peter, eat it. And he says, no way. We don't eat that kind of food. What he doesn't realize is that at the same time, Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, an officer, has a vision from God about going to, he's seeking God, and he says, God says, go get Peter and bring him back. And so as Peter's having this vision, he wakes up, and here the guys have arrived, and they say, we're here from Cornelius, and Peter says, okay, and he goes with them, and he realizes that he's supposed to share the gospel with this Roman soldier, and he does. And his household is saved. And in the midst of this, there is this struggle about, are they really people that we ought to be meeting with and connecting with and welcoming into the church? They're both hesitant. Ananias is hesitant because Paul's been persecuting Christians. And we sort of get that. Peter's hesitant because of simply who Cornelius is. He's a Roman He represents everything that is against the Jewish faith in first century. Oppressing them. He's a Gentile. He is outside the boundaries of what a a, a good Jew would do. And, And he goes to his house and he eats a meal with him declaring, okay, we're going to be in a relationship. And both of them are hesitant. And you can almost hear both of them saying, Lord, not to be disrespectful, but are you out of your mind? You want us to talk to who? You want us to share the gospel with who? Where? Really? Am I hearing you right? It goes against the grain of everything I've been taught. It goes against the grain of all the ways in which I'm supposed to see things. That's not, I'm not sure that's how the church should be. The realization for both of them is this is a huge risk. What if things blow up in our faces? What if they don't do what they're supposed to do? What if they don't see things the way we see them? What if they start changing who the church is? Are you sure you want us to do that? Philip Yancey says he once heard a description of the church like this. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a, the church is, is a person, is a, is a nice, pleasant 
bland person standing up in front of nice, pleasant, bland people, urging them to be nicer, more pleasant, and more bland. We don't want to take risks. We don't want to stick out our necks because we don't know what's going to happen. Are you sure? It feels like it's going against the grain of everything that I've been taught. And maybe it is. At some point, it becomes an issue of trust. That God is, is bigger than the boundaries we put around him. God is bigger than the boundaries we put around the church. We're continually being confronted about, as Davis Brooks says, are we going to, as a church, are we going to build ramps or are we going to build walls? Are we going to try to find ways to welcome people or are we going to try to find ways to keep people out? And underlying that is sort of this mindset that we keep people out because we want to keep the church pure. And there is something Right, Paul talks about the holy bride as the the church being Christ's holy bride. And the church is to be holy. But what we forget is that the church ceases to be perfect when you and I enter it. We don't need other people coming into the church to make it no longer perfect. You and I make it imperfect. And we forget that the church is a messy, complicated place. And we forget that we are here only because of the grace of God. And at whatever point in our journey or the journey of our family, at some point in time, either for us or back in our lineage somewhere, someone was welcomed into the church who shouldn't have been. Maybe we were welcomed into the church and we really shouldn't have been. Maybe our parents or our grandparents or our great, 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 great grandparents were welcomed into the church. And they really didn't have any business being welcomed into the church. They didn't fit the criteria of what people in the church should look like. But they were welcomed and their life was changed. And it's been changing lives in their families ever since. Until it gets to you and me. See, the minute we start talking about this kind of perspective, there are always going to be people who misunderstand what we're saying. They do with Ananias and Saul. I mean, Ananias goes to Saul, he prays with him, and and he and he and Saul is opens his heart to Jesus, and Ananias takes him to introduce him to the church, and they're like, uh, I don't think so. And he goes to Jerusalem and they don't want to have anything to do with him because they recognize he's been persecuting Christians and they don't trust him. And so Barnabas steps in and he says, no, look, he's he's good. We need to welcome him. And when Peter is done talking to Cornelius and praying with him and seeing this great revival take place in his family and his household, Peter gets called on the carpet. The church leaders say to him, what are you doing? Don't go to the homes of Gentiles and eat with them. You don't preach the gospel to them. That's not what we're about. You have, they have to become 
they have to become what we want them to be first before we're able to, before we talk to them. They have to get their lives together first before we're going to welcome them into the church, before we go and share the gospel with them. And Peter tells them about everything that happens. You have to give them credit. The leaders of the church who are upset, once they hear the story, say, okay, we know this is from God now. But we're continually fighting the struggle of people misunderstanding us. And even one of my greatest fears today is that you're going to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because when we start talking about the church creating a spirit of welcome, there are many people who interpret that as people come into the church and they just do what they want. That we, have, that we don't care about sin, that we don't care about what's going on in people's lives. We're just here to make them feel good about whatever they're doing in their life. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Peter does. That's not what Ananias does. That's not what the church has done through the centuries. I'm simply saying, are we creating an atmosphere in which people who don't know about Jesus or who have a skewed view of Jesus in the church might be welcomed by the church so that they can know what Jesus is really about. So that they can have their hearts and their lives transformed so that they can be set free from the bondage of sin as hopefully we have been set free from the bondage of sin. But if no one is willing to welcome them and to befriend them and to give them an an image of Jesus that might need to be fixed from the image that they have, they'll never really encounter Jesus. I keep coming back to, to the story that was recorded in the sixth chapter of John's gospel. Jesus is has gathered around him this large group of followers and he begins to teach them some hard things. And many of them disappear. And he looks at the 12 disciples and he says, you guys going to leave too? And they say to him, why would we go? You're the only one that has the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And that's the question that's in my mind as I think about people whose lives are messed up And who have skewed views of of what it means to really live. And what it means to be children of God. And what it means to be the church and to follow Jesus. And and if if we don't embrace them, where will they go? I mean, They will go to places that are going to give them wrong answers. That are going to reinforce the, the skewed negative ideas they have of who God is. It's in the church that people can find what deep inside they're looking for, just as we have found what deep inside we've been looking for. And we become a place of grace. And yes, when people come into the church and we make commitments to Christ, are there things that need to be dealt with in our lives? Most certainly there are. Scripture is clear about that. And we get to those things. What we're really talking about here is just the introduction for people to have an opportunity to see who Jesus is so that he can transform them. And then eventually we get to those other things. It's the welcome. It's intriguing to me that in both of these stories, Ananias and Peter don't wait for folks to come to them. They go to people. 
Peter could have said, okay, I know he wants me to come to him, but I'm not going to him. If he's really serious about this, he can come to me. Ananias could have said the same thing. Okay, Lord, I'll talk to Saul, but he has to come to me first because I'm not sure I really trust him. They both take huge steps of faith, huge risks, and they go to where the people are. And a huge part of being a church that welcomes people in need is to go to where they are. And that can be uncomfortable for us. We kind of like the safety and the security of church being us. What we're really looking for is is having the eyes and the mind and the spirit of Christ who hung out with people that others said really shouldn't be hanging out with. Who welcomed to himself people who were unexpected and watched their lives be transformed. I read about a a church that in a, in a public meeting, the leader, one of the leaders of the church had an idea that they should make keys for every family in the church, keys to the church for every family that came to the church. And he said that way they could keep the building locked all the times when they weren't meeting as a group and that because you just never know who might want to come into the church. And we don't want that. It's sort of the sign out front of the church that says no shoes, no shirt, no service. You know, until you measure up to our standards, we don't really want you around. And I just don't see that being the image of Jesus and I don't see that being the image of the church. And does that, can that create some problems? You bet it can. But it's, it's the whole Mindset of God that welcomes us here in the first place. So how do we create this mindset? How do we as individuals in this church take on the characteristics that we see in Ananias and in Peter and Jesus, God? I think how we read the scripture has something to do with that. Mark Laberton tells about being a part of a group in the church that decided they would read the scripture from the perspective of people outside the church. So instead of just reading the scripture for me, it would, they, they thought of people they all knew who were in different stages of difficulties of life. There's a, someone serving a life sentence in prison, a man who was struggling with AIDS, a, a couple who were homeless, a um, person who was who was wrestling with uh, cancer. Someone who was who was who had been a part of the church and had rejected it. Someone who was really involved in the occult. All these different people, and they began to read the scripture as much as they could from their perspective. What would this say to them? How would they respond to this? How would that confuse them? And so what ended up happening is that the scriptures began to speak to them in ways that it never had before. And not only that, but it caused them to see these people in different ways too. 
began to see them as God does. And I think prayer has a huge part to do with this. This is one of the reasons why this prayer vigil is so important to us. Because often our prayers are two minutes here, three minutes there, five minutes there. And that's important and it's good and that's a great way to pray as a part of our prayer life. And often our prayers are all about asking God to to help us and to do things. And we need to pray those kinds of prayers. They're important. God calls us to do that. Last week we were doing a lot of that. But we also need time to sit, to think, to listen, to let God speak into our lives. And it's hard to do that in just a couple of minutes. We need extended time. It's interesting. It's been interesting to me as we've done these prayer vigils that most of the time, as I talk with people, the, the one thing I hear before we start is always, I don't know how I could spend an hour praying. And what I hear after we're done or in the middle of it is, I wish I'd signed up for two hours because the time went so fast. Because once we get in there, and, and of course in the prayer room, there are all kinds of interactive ways for us to pray. All kinds of things for us to, be, to help us as we pray, guides and, and, and different things that are part of our praying, God begins to speak to us in that time. And quite frankly, one of the things that, that I would encourage you to think about is praying in the middle of the night. I mean, those are the hard times to fill up, to be honest with you. You know, those times at midnight and one, two, three, four in the morning. The times when normal people are sleeping, Right? I've been here some of those times and they have been some of the most powerful times because it's so quiet. And, and, and there is a, there's almost a sense of, of, of solitude that you don't get when there's traffic going by and people walking in the church and you hear different things going on. And in that silence of those middle of the night times, I find that my mind and my heart and my spirit is that much more sensitive to God. Pete Gregg says that prayer rooms are a place where we learn to imitate God. Places where we, in a, in a sense, we climb up into the lap of our Father and we just let him speak to us. That's why we're doing this. John Stott said, when you read the story of Cornelius and Peter, he said that story is included in the scriptures. Not so much to tell us about the conversion of Cornelius as it is to tell us about the conversion of Peter. And I think that's true. This is really a story about how God gets a hold of Peter and changes his perspective about who's welcome in the church. And my prayer is that God will speak to us individually and corporately, collectively, about that very same thing. That we'll see people the way God does. That through the reading of Scripture, through our prayers, through time with people, we'll begin to see not so much all of the things that turn us off about people, 
but begin to see them for who they are as people who are struggling and needy and people who are loved creatures of God. No less than you and I are loved creatures of God. Ultimately, we're faced with the decision. What kind of atmosphere are we going to create as a church? How are people going to perceive us as a church? How are we going to perceive ourselves as a church? As a place that is always thinking of ways that we can welcome people or close off people. It's a place where we're thinking about ways in which we can build ramps or walls. Holy Father, thank you for the ways in which you've already helped us as a church to build ramps and, and to, to be a source of, of your welcoming arms to people. Help us to embrace that truth more and more. As we read your words, we pray, as we live our lives. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.